earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today. Maybe you're in your car, maybe listening on a mobile device or catching the podcast. Last time in our intro to this March series, Preparing for Easter, or as I prefer to say, Resurrection Day, I said that the path to the Passion of the Christ is peppered with divine paradoxes. Paradoxes we must not only come to understand, but be willing to embrace. And this embracing, friends, can only come through personal surrender and faith. Surrendering the suke life, that's the New Testament word. In other words, the soul life or our baser self that operates purely in the natural realm, the realm of the senses, the realm of feelings and emotions, if you will. In surrendering this suke life, we find that the New Testament shows a higher life, resurrection life, zoe life, our other New Testament word. Life infused with a new dimension of living. Zoe life is eternal life, spiritual life, salvation life, if you will. And not just everlasting, something future as we tend to think, as in duration, but it actually includes dimension, a quality of life we can live now. We took as our cue Jesus' teaching in Luke nine twenty three and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, there's our word, suke, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. As we uncover these divine paradoxes, we're getting a glimpse of how the kingdom of God operates versus how the kingdom of this world operates. Friends, these two kingdoms are kingdoms in conflict. They're diametrically opposed kingdoms. After all, the path to the passion of the Christ leads to the cross. Recall that I mentioned one function of the cross in our lives is to put to death our suke life and distance us from that old life with its habit patterns. Last time in part one, we saw greatness God's way, the path of humility. We saw two kingdoms in conflict, the world's definition of greatness versus the kingdom of God's definition of greatness. Under the world system, people often ascend into greatness, and sometimes through selfish ambition. But in the kingdom of God, we descend into greatness through humility. Today we'll take a look at reciprocity God's way, and again witness two kingdoms in conflict. Friends, through some brief cameos, I'd like you to meet some people who understood the kingdom's way of reciprocating. 
first Louis the Twelfth of France. Before ascending to the throne and coming to power, he had a unique way of reciprocating with his enemies. He was previously cast into prison and kept in chains. Later, when he became king, he was urged to even the score, seek revenge, but he refused. Instead, he drafted a scroll listing all who had committed crimes against him. By each name, he drew a cross in red ink. When his enemies heard about this and saw the scroll, they feared for their lives and fled. But King Louis later clarified his actions with these words. The cross which I drew beside each name was not a sign of punishment, but a pledge of forgiveness extended for the sake of the crucified Savior, who upon his cross forgave his enemies and prayed for them. The cross put to death King Louis's suke life, his old life and its habit patterns, didn't it? Second, consider Sir Winston Churchill and Lady Churchill. They attended a dinner party one night. Lady Churchill was seated across the table from Sir Winston, and Sir Winston kept making his hand walk up and down the table towards Lady Churchill, with two fingers bent at the knuckles. Finally, out of sheer curiosity, one of their dinner guests quietly asked Lady Churchill, why is Sir Winston looking at you so wistfully? And what is he doing with his knuckles on the table? That's simple, Lady Winston replied. We had a mild quarrel before we left home, and he's telling me it was his fault, and he's on his knees apologizing. Third, how about Leonardo da Vinci? While painting The Last Supper, he had bitter argument with a fellow painter. He was so enraged, he decided to paint that fellow painter's face into the face of Judas. That way, the hated painter's face would be preserved for all time in the face of the betrayer. When his painting of Judas was finished, everyone recognized the one whom da Vinci had quarreled with. But as da Vinci continued working on his painting, every attempt to paint the face of Christ only frustrated him. He could not get Christ's face correct. Something kept holding him back. His conscience wouldn't let him rest, reminding him that the problem was his animosity toward that fellow painter. Well, Leonardo finally diffused his hatred, removing the fellow painter's face and putting Judas's back in. Only then was he able to paint Jesus's face and complete his masterpiece. And lastly, Corrie Ten Boom. In her book, The Hiding Place, she recounts a difficult moment after her concentration camp experience in Nazi Germany. It was at a church service in Munich. She noticed the former SS man who was one of the most cruel and heartless German guards she had ever known. He had humiliated and degraded her and her sister. He had jeered and visually violated them as they stood in the de-lousing showers at Ravensbrook. Immediately it all flashed back, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, her sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. As people exited the service, this former SS man came up to her, beaming and bowing, saying, I'm grateful for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you said, he washed away my sins. 
He stretched his hand out to shake hers, and she, who had often preached forgiveness in other cities, kept her hand frozen at her side. Angry, vengeful thoughts rushed to the surface, boiling inside her as she came face to face with these sins. Jesus had died for him. Was I going to require more, she thought? So she prayed to herself, Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me forgive him. She tried to smile and struggled to raise her hand, but she just couldn't. She didn't feel the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So she breathed out another silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. She then mechanically thrust her hand into his and experienced something incredible. From her shoulder down, her arm, and through her hand, a current seemed to pass from her to him, while in her heart sprang a love for him that nearly overwhelmed her. Her whole being was flooded with warmth and reconciliation, and tears poured out from her. She cried with her whole heart, I forgive you, brother. Their grasp remained strong for some time, the former SS guard and the former prisoner. She never knew the love of God so intensely as she did at that moment. She thought, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner has been you. Friends, a Hallmark card appropriately states, sometimes we have to let go of the past in order to enjoy the present and be able to dream about the future. Someone once said that forgiveness has been called the virtue we profess to believe, but fail to practice and neglect to preach. So I'm preaching on it today, friends. And my subtitle for part two is called Rolling a Seven, The Path of Forgiveness. And our jumping off point will be Matthew eighteen twenty-one through 35. Remember, the clock is winding down for Jesus. He's focused on and zeroing in on instilling in his disciples' minds the divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God. He's contrasting the heavenly value system with the earthly or worldly value system, two kingdoms in conflict. I'm going to highlight a portion of this parable. You know the story. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's Jesus' way of answering Peter's question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Friends, here's a good place to refresh ourselves with a cultural phenomenon among the Jews of the first century. Rabbis had taught that people should forgive an offender three times. So here Peter's probably thinking, I'll go beyond double that offer and impress Jesus. I'll offer to forgive seven times. Until, of course, Jesus says, not seven times, but seven times seventy. Near the end of this parable, Jesus recounts that the master forgave his servant's debt because he pleaded with him. But of course, this servant didn't respond in kind to his fellow servant. When word got back to his master, his master called him on the carpet and said, Hey, I canceled your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You wicked servant, I'm turning you over to the jailers to torture you until you repay all you owe me. 
Then Jesus ends with these provocative words. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Friends, many years ago when I was working in New York City, I went out for lunch one day and noticed stenciled on several street corners right on the blacktop at the curb line these words. Don't get mad, get even. Now there's an unforgiving spirit, wouldn't you say? Well, this parable in Matthew eighteen twenty-one through 35 interestingly opens and closes with forgiveness, like bookends. Now, I believe Peter's original question, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister, was asked to Jesus in light of a common Bible verse we all quote from time to time. You know it. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. While this is true by itself, we don't often familiarize ourselves with the context Jesus closes with this statement. It happens to close out a teaching on dealing with sin in the church community and the practice of calling a sinning brother or sister to repentance and reconciliation for the purpose of restoring a fractured relationship. Jesus is telling us that repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation maintain the integrity of the Christian community, keeping fellowship intact without strained or fractured relationships ending up in broken or lost relationships and remaining that way. Friends, our calling as the church, the family of God, is to live in the light of God's truths. This includes bringing our conflicts into open so we can properly deal with them. We should be making every effort to keep short accounts with God and our brothers and sisters. The idea here is that we shouldn't allow a debt to accumulate bitterness interest by waiting it out to see if the other person will take the first step. Friends, the ones who hurt us incur a moral debt. Our part in the equation is to relinquish these accounts to God and forgive the debt we feel others owe us. What we're learning here is when the suke life dominates, we fall back on earthly or worldly arithmetic and keep records of all the times we've forgiven others. I'll bet there are times when we haven't doled out even the seven times Peter was offering to forgive. But when the zoe life is in control and dominating, we choose to use heavenly or godly arithmetic. Seventy times seven. You see, friends, the divine paradox, I believe, that Jesus was getting at to teach his disciples was that they were supposed to forgive an unlimited number of times. Seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven, is meant to be taken as a hyperbole. In other words, forgiveness should be offered countless times. Friends, I believe this is one of the greatest barriers to Christian growth and maturity, knowing what to do with forgiveness. I'm convinced that many of us don't realize the seriousness of Jesus' words in Matthew 18.35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Not just blurting out words to fulfill a duty, but expressing deep and true heart forgiveness. This is the only kind of forgiveness God accepts. 
This reminded me of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, where Jesus ends his template-like prayer with these provocative words, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You see, friends, our lack of willingness to forgive others ends up becoming a barrier to receiving God's forgiveness of our own sins. Friends, forgiveness characterizes and should be the hallmark of those who enter the kingdom of heaven. Holding on to an unforgiving spirit demonstrates that we're not yet fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll admit, this is a hard truth, but God does not forgive the unforgiving. It's just that plain and simple. So, here in our second installment, the parable of the unmerciful servant should cause us to take a hard look at the enormous moral debt God has forgiven us of in Christ. This should compel us to forgive others. By forgiving others, we free ourselves from the torture of festering resentments. Remember the lesson Corey Tenboom learned? To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner has been you. Look, maybe we can't change what others have done to us, but we can write off their debts by handing the accounting process over to God. Unlike the world's value system and its reciprocating method, marked by the suke-driven life, the kingdom's value system, marked by the zoe-driven life, and God-like forgiveness, operates differently. You see, friends, when someone has wronged us, the suke-driven life has a natural expectation of a chain of events. We expect the other person to owe us something, either some form of restitution or, at a minimum, a remorseful apology. If that occurs, we feel vindicated and are most likely willing to reciprocate and forgive their debt because it now has been paid in some way. But reciprocity, God's way, kingdom forgiveness, God's way, overlooks the middle step. Kingdom forgiveness recognizes that the process towards reconciliation always begins with the injured person, not with the person who did the injuring. Remember how Matthew 18.15 begins? If your brother or sister sins against you... Go and point out their fault in private. If they listen, you have won them over. Friends, one of the hard truths of our Christian faith is that forgiveness is not an option. It's a necessity. It's a command to obey, whether we feel like it or not. There are definitely times when forgiveness must be offered out of sheer obedience to the word of God. When we perceive forgiveness as a feeling, we lose out. Forgiveness is an act of the will, motivated by God's word. This is an area where our suke-driven life must be put to death, crucified, because feelings and emotions are unreliable and untrustworthy. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
Colossians 3, 13 and 14 say, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness, friends, only occurs and flourishes in the context of genuine godly love. That is why the exhortation in Colossians three twelve through 17 has in the context of forgiveness this summary, and above all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The emotional debts we sinful people would otherwise owe to one another have been canceled by the shed blood of Jesus, our Savior. The only outstanding debt we should have is the continuing debt to love one another, as Romans thirteen eight through 10 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Friends, relational forgiveness should be the trademark of the Christ follower. It should characterize our actions towards each other for our mutual offenses, because God has forgiven us for the greatest offense, our personal sin and rebellion against him. Loving Christ's way presupposes our willingness to forgive others. Remember, we ourselves have been the recipients of God's undeserved favor. This is how we define grace. Having received undeserving favor, we should freely dish out undeserving favor to others. We forgive and love in spite of others' sins, just as God in Christ has done for us. The Apostle Paul couldn't have been clearer when he said in Romans 5, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Notice, we were not even neutral. We were not even just uncaring one way or the other. Not even indifferent. We were enemies. We were moral rebels running from God, and yet God loved us in Christ, and his blood was shed to save us and reconcile us back to himself. In our Sioux crazy culture, friends, and our constant demand for legal rights, Jesus' and Paul's teachings sound almost impossible. After all, when someone hurts us deeply, the suke-driven life often kicks in and becomes our fallback position to give them what they deserve. But reciprocity, God's way, friends, instead draws from the zoe-driven life and gives others not what they deserve, but what they need. Forgiveness has the power to break a cycle of retaliation and initiate mutual reconciliation. It's a great day for us Christ followers when we follow the path of forgiveness, and forgiveness reigns, and bitterness is relinquished. So when someone hurts us, offends us, sins against us, let's not fall into rolling a seven. Let's instead choose the path of forgiveness. Let's work at cultivating a Christian culture of repentance, 
forgiveness, and reconciliation, and work at restoring fractured relationships. After all, Romans twelve sixteen through 18 remind us, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, friends, let's pursue the path of forgiveness, because this is reciprocity God's way. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope it's been both edifying and challenging, and it would be my honor to be praying for you as we all grow in learning to be forgiving servants in God's kingdom and practice heaven's value system, resisting the world's value system. Jesus taught us, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. You may also learn how to financially help this listener-supported program. Please consider joining a Word from the Words support team. I'd be grateful. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, Email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.